Hello, and welcome back to our Global Tech Swamp podcast. In this episode, we're being joined by Carnegie Mellon University's Dr. Lori Craner for a deep dive into one of the trendiest and most innovative privacy tools being rolled out by platforms, privacy nutrition labels. We'll be talking through the gaps these labels are filling, how developers and consumers feel about these labels, and what they mean for the future of standardized privacy notices. And of course, we have our hosts and friendly global podcast team here today. Hey, Anna. Hello. Hello, Brad. How's it going? Why, hello there. Why, hello. <laughs> and Caitlin, what is up? I'm actually literally membership chilling. I'm in the membership office right now. So it's, it's, so it's nice to be officially membership chilling. <laughs> yes, that is great to hear. Uh, and of course, I'm Alex. Um, before we get into our privacy conversation with Dr. Craner, we are going to talk tech history and the top global tech headlines. November 26, 1996, 26 years ago this month, the MP3 was patented. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, or USPTO, granted German innovators at the Fraunhofer Institute the patent for a, quote, digital encoding process we now know as the MP3. Scientists at Fraunhofer began compressing music as far back as 1977, but began work on what we call the MP3 in 1987. Uh, in 1989, the Institute was awarded a patent in Germany, and less than a decade later, they received the patent in the U.S., and the rest is tech history. And now on to bites and brews. Anna and Brad and Caitlin, what are the top tech headlines? Well, in case you missed it, the European Union's Digital Services Act, or DSA for short, entered into force last week, although most of the provisions will not apply until January 1st, 2024. As a quick refresher, the DSA was written to hold large platforms like Google and Twitter accountable for policing content on their sites. This is in an effort to tackle issues like illegal products, disinformation, and hate speech. As a reminder, the DSA's sister legislation, the Digital Markets Act, will also start to apply next year. For more info on what all this means for SMEs, head to our show notes. You should also be sure to tune into our 2024 Global Tech Policy Look Ahead being released next month. The U.S. is just now coming off the midterm elections, and there are some updates. While many political pundits and experts predicted a red wave of Republican candidates taking control of the House and Senate by a large majority, Congress saw one of the lowest party turnovers in midterm history. Republican took, Republicans took the House by a narrow margin, and Democrats barely held on to the Senate, meaning the 118th Congress could see some significant back and forth when it comes to legislative priorities. Notable action from the House, Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced she was stepping down from House Democrat leadership, although she still plans on serving in Congress. Both parties still have leadership roles to fill in both chambers, however. It was leaked that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell secured his place in Senate leadership via a secret ballot earlier earlier this month in a vote. Over 40 global organizations co-signed and sent a letter to the EU and U.S. officials related to the EU-U.S. data privacy framework. The letter was in support of the privacy framework's restrictions on surveilling American citizens and providing recourse for EU citizens who believe they have been victims of unlawful surveillance. 
Another ask in the letter was around the expert review of certain regulations in the framework and how they're enforced within the EU. We'll be sure to keep you posted on the transatlantic data privacy framework in future episodes of TechSwamp. Some updates out of the Federal Communications Commission related to broadband, specifically mapping and labels. Now we're going to hear more about privacy nutrition labels here in a second, but the FCC just released a set of rules requiring broadband providers to have clear labels for the services they provide and are calling them, you guessed it, broadband labels. (laughs) They'll look pretty similar to the nutrition labels we see on our food products, but have information related to services provided, provider fees, taxes, and more. In mapping updates, the FCC recently released an interactive broadband map showing where high-speed internet access and 5G service is and is not available across the U.S. The goal is to use these maps as a tool to bridge the digital divide. And that's all for What's Brewing. And now I'm going to throw it to Anna and Caitlin for our interview with Dr. Lori Craner on privacy nutrition labels. And as we mentioned earlier, we're being joined by Dr. Lori Craner for a deep dive into one of the trendiest and most innovative privacy tools being rolled out by platforms. It's called the Privacy Nutrition Label. And Dr. Craner is the director and Bosch Distinguished Professor in Security and Privacy Technologies of Scilab and the Four Systems Professor of Computer Science and of Engineering and Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University. She also directs the Scilab Usable Privacy and Security Laboratory and co-directs the MSIT Privacy Engineering Master's Program. And last but not least, she's also a Privacy Fellow with the ACT-adjacent Innovators Network Foundation. Hi, Dr. Craner. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Glad to be here. Of course. So, um, you know, you have been at the forefront of the privacy nutrition label concept for quite some time. Um, Before we dive into anything else, I I want you to kind of walk us through what got us here. You know, what was the problem that you and the team were looking to solve or that gap you were trying to fill? Um, What was the need for something like a privacy nutrition label? Sure. Um, So the idea of a privacy nutrition label actually goes back to the late 1990s uh, when I think um, we started seeing more privacy policies going up on websites and people saw these long privacy policies full of legalese and said, nobody's going to read these things. Is there any way that we can make them short and like a little table like a food nutrition label? And uh, we heard this from from policymakers and people who didn't really know how they would design a label. They weren't designers, um, but they they thought something like this would be a good idea. And so um, back um, around uh, 2004, um, I uh, started working um, in in the CUPS lab at Carnegie Mellon and I started talking to my students about, well, what would this privacy nutrition label actually look like? And so we started doing um, studies in the context of website privacy labels. And then we moved on to mobile app labels where arguably there's even more of a problem because you have consumers that are using a device with a small screen and they're trying to quickly decide which apps to download. And it's really hard to get any good information about privacy. Absolutely. And can you kind of set the scene for us a little bit, you know, back 
at this time. Um, there were not really any data privacy laws on the books like we see now with Europe's GDPR or here um, in the U.S. with California CCPA, for example. Um, can you kind of talk about the gap that's that industry could be filling by creating a standard like a privacy nutrition label? Well, I think now, even even though that we now have laws, um, the laws don't tell us uh, how to be transparent. You know, we, we have laws that say transparency is required. Some of them even say you have to, you know, be clear and easy to understand and, and have some nice usability properties. Um, but they don't go into too much detail. Um, and, and they probably shouldn't be too prescriptive because uh, chances are if they did, you know, things would need to change faster than the law could change. Um, nonetheless, uh, we what we have is kind of a mess for consumers because um, it's really hard, even when you have a well-written privacy policy, and a lot of them aren't, but even when you have some that are clear and well-written, they're, they're still really hard to compare side by side or to uh, know where to look to find you know, the thing that you're interested in. Whereas uh, it's very easy for us to look at food products and you know, if you go to the doctor and the doctor's like, well, you have to watch your cholesterol or whatever, whatever that is, you can go and put food products side by side and very easily see that information. Um, so I think there is tremendous advantage to consumers to having things in a simple standardized format. We mentioned GDPR, and now more recently, a topic of discussion has been the the EU-US Privacy Shield, which is now getting a little update um, and will be known as the Transatlantic Data Privacy Framework. Um, and as we see the EU continue to lead on privacy, with the US and other nations following suit, um, what does this mean for the private sector investing in privacy-enhancing technologies like the nutrition label? And um, I'm wondering, you know, do you think that's a good thing that our tech laws are lagging behind Europe? Does it give um, researchers like you more time to think about ideas before government mandates their own? Um, or is it a bad thing that we're lagging behind? Um, or is it altogether a waste of time when it comes to SMEs and other small businesses? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, no, I don't think, I, I have to say at the end of the day, it's probably not a good thing that we're lagging behind. Um, and I, uh, again, I don't think that the European privacy laws preclude innovation in things like privacy nutrition labels. Uh, in fact, I, I would argue that they are supportive of that sort of thing. Um, and I think we, we need to have the research and the design and evaluation kind of in parallel with the development of regulation, and there needs to be kind of a, a feedback loop. Um, so uh, to go to a little bit of a different example, um, I've also been working on cookie banners and those user interfaces. And you know we have a case where the European regulators have said, you have to have these banners, and, and some of them have even come up with mock-ups of what they should look like which they put out. And from a usability perspective, some of these officially condoned banners are actually really bad. Um, and uh, they were just made up by people who are policymakers and not like usability experts. And, and so what we, we really need is for the policymakers to actually reach out to uh, researchers and ask them to, to run user studies and to test these things before they say, aha, we, we have the solution. 
I absolutely love that. I watched that YouTube video that you did with the cookies. Um, I I thought it was so great. Um, I definitely will make sure that that is included in the show notes for our listeners so that they can go ahead and check that out too, because that was that was a really great, uh, great piece of content. Um, I want to kind of bring the conversation back a little bit. Um, you know, we are ACT, the App Association. Our members are developers. Um, I want to kind of drill down a little bit about what privacy nutrition labels uh, mean for developers. Um, you know, I have to imagine that there is some some goodwill in the developer community when it comes to these privacy nutrition labels, especially when it comes to consumer trust. So can you kind of explain to us, um, you know, how consumers feel about privacy nutrition labels, um, what this does uh, for overall consumer trust in, in the app economy when it comes to just perusing an app store and downloading an app? Yeah, so um, I I think there's a lot of great potential for uh, privacy nutrition labels for apps, and unfortunately, um, it's it's somewhat unrealized at the moment because the specific formats and details that um, the two major app stores have put out are not great. Um, but you know, we've been doing some studies here at CMU um, where we've been interviewing both app developers and um, app users uh, to see what they understand about these labels. Um, so to start with the developers, uh, most of the developers we've interviewed think they're a good idea, but they're really confused about the process of creating them. Uh, there's all sorts of um, kind of privacy jargon, right, that they have to understand in order to accurately create a label. And we've found that even developers who are trying to do the right thing are making lots of mistakes because they don't understand the privacy vocabulary. Um, and uh, that's something that I think um, we can help with. Uh, the app stores could provide better guidance and better uh, user interfaces for the developers to actually develop the labels. They could also provide automation. Uh, I know of two student projects right here at Carnegie Mellon where we have students who are trying to say, well, let's just analyze the code the developer wrote and see how much of the label we can generate automatically for them. And you know they're finding that they can actually generate most of the label automatically. And then what, what they can't generate automatically, they can then guide the developer uh, through filling out the form to do the rest themselves, but with, with a lot more guidance. Um, and uh, the, the testing that we've, we've done so far with developers, they, you know, they think this is a great idea. On the user side, uh, we find that users are just as confused about the vocabulary as the developers, if not more so. Um, and a lot of users are unaware of the existence of these labels. And when we show them the labels, they're like, that's so cool, how come I didn't know about this? And then when they try to drill down and understand them, they're like, okay, this is a little confusing. Um, and again, it's because of the vocabulary, but also some of the decisions, the design decisions that Apple and Google made um, when deploying these labels um, uh, could probably have benefited from uh, some design work and some usability testing. That's really interesting. And and I, I wonder now that we know all about the privacy nutrition labels and how they're created and how consumers and developers respond to them, what they do. Um, we, we only have one question remaining for you, and that is how do, um, how do privacy labels and their implementation 
impact the future of standardized privacy notices? Uh, so uh, I think you know privacy notices can be used in lots of other contexts besides um, apps, and uh, this is really with apps is really the first place where we've seen widespread deployment. Uh, so I think this is a good first step, and uh, hopefully it will um, inspire the use of standardized privacy notices in other contexts. Uh, as I mentioned, we, we worked on website privacy notices. We have another project that we've worked on uh, privacy and security notices for IoT devices, uh, trying to put them in a standardized format. Um, and so uh, hopefully uh, we will uh, get the app platforms to clean up the designs of what they have, but also that this will then um, be inspirational for having uh, standardized privacy notices in, in other contexts. And uh, perhaps, you know, now we've done kind of the existence proof uh, that will make um, others more interested and maybe also regulators more interested in saying that this should be part of, of the formula of what, what we're putting into our regulation. Absolutely. And and you brought up a really important point um, that uh, is something that the platforms can do better to empower developers and consumers, which is just to roll out maybe a couple of features, maybe something that's automated, an FAQ, a template, something to make these privacy nutrition labels a little bit more accessible um, to folks. So if you're curious about uh, that letter, we'll also have it linked in our show notes. Um, that pretty much brings us to the end of this chat. Dr. Craner, um, thank you so much for joining us on TechSwamp. Thanks, it was fun. And now it is time for Random Identifier. Anna, you are up first, what do you have for us? Well, I think I'm gonna have to talk about the great war that Taylor Swift fans have started with Ticketmaster. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because I am a Taylor Swift fan, I'm not embarrassed to say it, but I didn't even get a pre-sale code, which was disappointing, oh but then my friend got a pre-sale code, and we still had to wait in the line for tickets for four hours. We were texting and on the phone to coordinate which tickets we were going to buy, and then even the tickets that we ended up buying, which it seems like we were lucky to even get them, were more expensive than they were supposed to be because of this thing called dynamic pricing. Which, why are you making us do? Why are you making us do that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I'm upset, and I could talk about this for longer, but I will not. And I'm going to focus my energy on going to the concert and having a good time. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I've always been pretty anti-Ticketmaster, um, and unfortunately, recently my favorite venues in DC switched to Ticketmaster, which is very sad. Oh for no. Me. They used to use like an independent thing, but my friend, who is quite literally the biggest Taylor Swift fan that I've ever met in my whole life, which I know is shocking given my. Uh, personal feelings about Taylor Swift. Opposition, yeah. Um, <laughs> she didn't even get tickets. It's, like, yeah. so bad. She's so upset, and I feel so bad. I mean, nothing I can do, but big yikes. That's um, a lot of people yeah. that couldn't get tickets. Yeah, so. I've heard Senator Klobuchar took it really personally, too. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, a lot of, you know, Senator Klobuchar spoke up about this. So did AOC. You know, yeah. the politicians are revealing themselves which side they're on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Good to know. Um, <laughs> Brad, how about you? What do you have for us? Of course. We'll stay in the, the music realm for just a moment. I just got back from New York City seeing Dave Matthews Band uh, for two nights at Madison Square Garden. 
and I did have to go through Ticketmaster, and yes, it was quite a disaster. But that's not why I'm here. Uh, I yes. just wanted to shout from the rooftops how amazing Madison Square Garden is. Uh, just not only as an arena, it's incredibly clean, and there's great food options, and all the all the good things. But boy, there is not a bad seat in that entire mm. venue. And the the sound is just so incredible. So I, I just felt like I needed to give props to Madison Square Garden and kind of make the recommendation that if you ever have the chance to see a concert there, um, I, I would take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, it's still on my list. I've never seen a show there, even though I am a girl who grew up in New Jersey and my parents have seen Bruce Springsteen there like eight times. It's fine. Whatever. Someday you have to go. I know. It sounds so good. Someday. Someday. Um, Caitlin, what about you? You're next. Um, I am going to be bringing eels to the table. Yes. Um, not physically. Actually, no. <laughs> They're in the membership office. <laughs> the eels are in the office. The eels run this city. We don't. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Um, well, I just learned some some fun facts from a website you might have heard of and application TikTok.com. Um, and it, it was related to uh, the first Thanksgiving, um, which took place in America a very, very, very long time ago. So long ago that the cuisine is not like anything we eat now. Um, and I was horrified to learn that one of the menu items uh, at the first Thanksgiving was eels. Um, I saw a picture of the eels stacked up on a platter. I didn't (laughs) like it. I felt really scared. I still feel scared. It's just like when I think about Thanksgiving and I think about the food, I'm not ever thinking about eels. So this has really kind of, it altered my brain chemistry, I think. Yeah. (laughs) I am not camp eels. I think you should bring it back. Okay. BYOE. (laughs) B-Y-O-E B-Y-O-E Well my I'm like really upset about the eels Um, My random identifier is also sort of uh, Thanksgiving related in that um, basically every year since I was a kid for Thanksgiving uh, my mom and I have gone to uh, visit our family in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Technically, they're in Carborough, uh, which is only an important distinction because um, there's a really good coffee shop that's like literally across the street from my aunt and uncle's house. It's called Open Eye Cafe. Um, and I really obviously love their coffee because I'm talking about it. But also, it's like a place where like some very important like life milestone things happened to me in this particular coffee shop. Like I uh, like applied for college. <laughs> in in that like I finished my essay and then like set out my common app and then like um I wrote a big chunk of my thesis in in this um like one of the biggest proposals actually that I ever put together for act did that there um so it's uh it's it's a it's a place that has both like personal and just like coffee significance for me and so I'm excited to get a cup of coffee there tomorrow after my long drive um so yeah shout out to open eye cafe I'm just excited to know what kind of genius idea you're about to come That's up with. I do have to work on a, I do have a little bit of work I have to do there on Wednesday. So who knows? Maybe it's, maybe it'll be a brilliant idea. Anything could happen. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That just reads to me like nostalgia in italics too. And yeah, I love totally. that. 
No, it's good. It's good. Uh, I'll, I'll update everyone. If, if the idea comes to fruition, then I'll let everyone know when we talk about it on Text Mom that it's a, an open eye cafe idea. <laughs> that has to be your next random identifier. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> um, all right, folks, that is it for our Global Text Mom. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com. Just search TechSwamp. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we'd love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. <laughs> and that is all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to this global episode of Text Month. Everyone, say bye. 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 bye.